Welcome back, everybody. This is part two of our interview with Mr. Adam Jacoby, who is the executive director of the Wisconsin High School Forensics Association. That's, that's, how, that's how I'm contributing. All right. Yeah. Well, you know what? There's, there's really nothing more to say. Let's just jump back in. So we're back. We're, we're back. back with Adam Part Jacoby. Two. So for everybody listening, it's been a week. Um, so to, I'll just remind you that we've been talking with Adam Jacoby, who's the executive director of the Wisconsin High School Forensics Association. Uh, and uh, we talked about uh, how he got started in forensics and his time working for the NFL, now the NSDA, uh, and how he became a coach. And so you should listen to that interview. If you haven't already, go one back in the podcast feed and listen to that. For us, it's just been a few minutes yeah. and we're going to jump right back in. Hello again. And say welcome back. <laughs> Adam um, and and Alyssa kind of alluded. Well, Alyssa, I you just, just got I my dropped, name wrong. I dropped an entire letter. Oh, wow! You just wanted me to be name. in alliteration with Adam, yes. maybe. Which is like, I'll I'll let it slide for now. But like, you just said my name wrong. I also want to point out that every time that Kurt says Wisconsin uh, High School Friends Association, he reads it off of I am the logo totally on Adam's sweatshirt. It. He's obviously repping his merchandise well by wearing it to the podcast mm-hmm. today. But each time you've read, you've said it, you've read it off of the logo on his sweatshirt. Yeah, it's, it's and true. I just wanted to call you've, you out for you've it. You've been catching me. Because you just said my name wrong. I was going to leave it alone, but you said my no, name wrong. You know so... What? You know what? Maybe if your name was on your shirt. <laughs> I don't oh. Know. You know what, though? In over, like, in three years, I've never gotten your name wrong. And that just happened. Well, I'm fine. So. Wow. <laughs> this is so what welcome. it's like. Welcome. Yeah, welcome. <laughs> welcome back, everybody. Um, okay, so anyways, you, uh, as Melissa alluded to earlier, uh, you worked internationally on the forensics debate scene. Indeed. How did that happen? So um, when, when I worked at uh, the NSDA National HQ in Ripon, we got a cold call out of the blue one day uh, from Stefan Bouchard, who was the assistant coach at the time for Harvard College's undergraduate debate team, um, who had in turn been called by a minister of education in Beijing, China, um, who read some literature that debate was a premier activity for high school kids to be involved with to give them greater access to and scholarships for colleges and universities. And there, as, as the middle class in China has grown with the economy in that country, um, there's been an increased interest by Chinese families, particularly those who are in the upper middle class to upper class socioeconomic strata to send their young people to the United States for college and university experiences. So they wanted to figure out what our high school kids were doing so that theirs could compete. So, of course, the Chinese people being the Chinese people, and I'm not stereotyping here uh, because my friends from China would tell you that they do this. They go straight to the top. Okay. And so that's why they called Harvard, because Harvard represents the best of anything educationally in the United States. So that was their pathway. And, and thank goodness the Harvard coach said, well, I'm not really an authority on the matter of high school speech and debate, mm-hmm. but I know the people who are. So let me get you in touch with them. And so the conversation was born. And because it kind of fell under programming and education, I became the the team leader for development of curriculum and of a textbook. And uh, and I one of our collaborators was Dino Pape, who longtime coach at Ribbon College and now um, works at uh, as a coach at Simpson College, but also does a little part time work still with the NSDA in Des Moines. And uh, and we collaborated, built a textbook, uh, an app, and. If, as that project was happening, uh, Chinese officials were trying to recruit me to go over and teach because I was the project lead. And they, they thought, well, you know, I'd be a good person to help them kind of springboard this and get it going. And they were going, as to, you said, they go straight to the top. Well, yeah. <laughs> I don't know about that, but they, they wanted me to, to teach in their premier high school in Beijing. And I just... First of all, the idea of, of moving internationally, just kind of picking up and going at the time, and this was in 2012, was, was just so 
foreign to me, if you'll excuse the pun. But, you know, I just wasn't ready for it at that point in my life. I, I That was right as I was just coming to terms with, with my sexual orientation. And so th- there, there were just a lot of things that I, I didn't want to leave at that point. Um, so I helped coordinate the curriculum and launching of the program and, and, you know, sent advice and materials to the folks who went over to China. I went to uh, Wuxi, China, which is about a half hour outside of Shanghai um, in May of 2012 to do a, like a kickoff training exercise with about a hundred Chinese teachers. Well, none of those teachers ever became debate coaches. In fact, I have Mm. no idea whatever happened to them. But we were also told by one of our cultural attaches um, in the U.S. Department of State that that may have all been a ruse for members of the Communist Party of China to vet what we were doing and make sure that we weren't trying to spread certain propaganda and stuff like that. So. That's crazy. This is so the West Wing. <laughs> right. Great. So that was the other reason why I'm like, you want me to teach in your premier school in Beijing? I don't want to be under that kind of scrutiny. No, thank you very much. So a year passed and um, I, I began to have some thoughts. Maybe I should have done this, um, you know, and, and I was just kind of getting at a point in my life where I was getting a little antsy. And so they came back and they said, well, we have a limited engagement for you um, to finish out the contract of a teacher who became ill and can't finish um, the next semester. So it would be a limited one semester contract with the option to renew and we would find work for you mm. if you wanted to stay. And I'm like, well, that seems ideal. And and so, and, and they covered my health care and everything else. So I, at that point, I had a year to think about it. And I was going to more of a third rate city in China, which I felt was a lot um, easier to do. So the city I ended up with uh, ended up in was Chang, uh, Changzhou, um, which is in Jiangsu province, one province to the west of, of Shanghai, the same province that Wuxi was in. Wuxi mm-hmm. was the next city down the uh, the bullet train route from Shanghai, and uh, it was just a really neat city in so many ways. Uh, a lot of Americans have written about Changzhou as being the Midwest of China in okay. terms of the the feel of the people in the city. You're walking down the sidewalk, people nod, they smile, they say hello or ni hao, uh, <laughs> you know, and it's it's just – it's it's a smaller city by Chinese standards, only six million people. Oh, so my. you know, it's it's a little more nice and cozy. Yeah, mm-hmm. an easier transition from the the bustling metropolis of seven thousand of Ripon, sure. um, that, that I had come from, and and so and I will tell you, I I, I flew over like right on Labor Day, um, and. That I was in Shanghai for a day, kind of being debriefed at their corporate headquarters because it was the first time since I had worked for a couple months at a public relations firm right out of college that I worked in the private corporate sector once mm. again. Um, and, and so that was kind of an interesting thing, although um, as a corporation by American standards, um, the bottom line was not as paramount as, as it might be here. Mm. Um, there, there was a bottom line of, of good education with this company, which made it a good one to work for. And, and they got into the business of education by being consultants for Chinese high schoolers who wanted to go to colleges and universities abroad. So they provided college counseling services to kids. And then that grew into an SAT prep you know, service, which sure. then grew into an advanced placement, international baccalaureate, Cambridge A-level uh, teachers, you know, and, and and curricular programming in schools. And then growing out of that came the debate and theater and, and other programs to kind of mirror what was happening in other international and American schools. And so wow. I, I was lucky to be part of the debate part of that. And so... Um, when I got to the city that I, I was was going to be my home for the next semester, 
Um, I was in a hotel the first night and then the very next day they took me apartment shopping and, uh, and there were three that they toured me to all downtown. Um, and the one that I settled, they were all two bedroom apartments too for hmm. little old me, but they, they felt that a Westerner would want more space. And, you know, <laughs> sure, sure. So that, that was kind of the thing. Yeah. So, um, so the one I settled on was literally one unit below the head of college counseling at the school that my company ran. She was in her 60s, and uh, and I met her, felt really comfortable with her, and I thought, you know what, I would just feel comfortable. It was a real direct route to walk from there to school, mm-hmm. but it was above a shopping mall and a rather noisy one at that. And, oh, and so – you know, Sunday mornings, which are, you know, the one morning I would be able to sleep in pretty well, uh, I would often be abruptly awoken by the sound of like Lady Gaga's, you know, um, what was the song that was really popular at the time? Bad Uh, Romance, maybe? No, Applause. Oh. Uh, Lady Gaga's Applause booming out of the mall below because they were holding a wedding reception in the mall, which is something. Chinese weddings can be huge and big productions. And so, and and the (laughs) horns honking all hours of the day at night and fireworks going off. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's right. China was the birthplace of the firework. And people would set them off because it was their... 47th birthday or you know just, just for any reason yeah mm-hmm. i should be able to do that here i know um and so and i was 12 Kurt does not agree yeah, no <laughs> i was 12 floors up you know just overwhelmed um but i eventually acclimated but the first couple of months i moved there was a wardrobe that came with the apartment. I moved it in front of the windows in my bedroom to block out the sound so it was a little <laughs> bit more peaceful. But then the bedroom was this cave. So then I'd spend more time out in the living room watching TV and stuff like that. And, you know, it was interesting. I, did, I didn't look at a lot of broadcast TV. I, I, I downloaded a whole lot of stuff to, to kind of keep me occupied on the side. Just mm-hmm. sometimes I needed to unwind and watch something you know, that I didn't have to think about. Um, but it was in China that I became a fan of RuPaul's Drag Race, which I know what? both of you are big fans of. Um, Full circle moment. I know. Yes. It just happens. <laughs> and, uh, and, and I will just say that there were other expatriates like myself who – like myself were gay and so that's when I really started coming out of my shell and dating and getting to know people and and it was a it was and a all it took was a trip to China uh, right yeah. right exactly again <laughs> the, the second kind of coming out of my comfort zone yeah. and doing something totally different um and and I worked in three schools um there was the main school that my my company ran a program out of and what was interesting is the kids that I worked with there their families paid an upcharge tuition to do the advanced placement program. And then I had all the pre-AP students who were high school sophomores who they thought having debate would really kind of prepare them more for their, you know, junior and senior level AP classes, which I thought was really smart. Mm-hmm. Um, I enjoyed working with those kids um, to, to a large extent. Um, some of them, because they were coming from wealthier backgrounds, um, just were not really they didn't really care you know so they were just kind of there taking up space and i tried to reach them best i could but when i only spoke english and they did not feel the need to speak english there was that barrier so that that was a bit of a challenge um i will tell you that teenagers are teenagers uh no matter where you are on earth uh, they are governed (laughs) by their yeah they are governed by their hormones they are silly and goofy fun loving and and i just had such a great time you know i i often hear you melissa talking about the mom bag and you know just carrying all the essentials with you and it's amazing what teenagers even in china forget to bring with them on trips and 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 the little runs you have to make to the drugstore and and all that kind of stuff and you know and 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 that was really gratifying it's surprisingly comforting to you it is yeah. Well, it was for me as a mm. foreigner in a strange land, mm-hmm. quite certainly. I And a week, one week after I got into China, I had to take my kids on an eight-hour bullet train ride to Beijing for their national championship. 
Mm. because they started the program the year before and uh, they hadn't had a chance to implement nationals. So they just said, what the heck? We'll just do it at the beginning of the next school year. And we'll let all the kids who had debated the previous year do that. So I had literally a few days to work with the kids who were going, you know, and hope that the coach they had prior to my arriving there had at least done some good foundational mm-hmm. work, which, by the way, she had. So I was really fortunate. And I took a pair of, of, of two boys and two girls, um, each from two different schools, and they were just such a treat to travel with. Goofy is all get out. They immediately embraced me and, and in fact, took care of me, made sure mm. that, you know, I was okay. And mm. they were my ad hoc translators and we'd go out to eat and figure out, you know, what I needed to eat because I was just so new at that point. Yeah. Um, and, and so we got to the train station and there was this really quaint looking like noodles place. And I thought, oh, not, not like noodles and company. I mean, like a, a <laughs> Chinese noodle place. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and like, oh, let's go. And the kids are like, oh, please, Mr. Adam, let's go to KFC. And I'm like, <laughs> uh, I promised myself I would not do American fast food when I had this whole wealth of other food to explore. But being a slave to my students, as I always was as a coach, I entertained their their interest. And we went to KFC. And I looked at the menu and the kids started laughing a little bit. They're like, is this different from your KFC in America? <laughs> I'm like, yes. Yeah. Uh, and, and so I'm like, I just want a chicken sandwich. And they're like, I, I don't know what you mean. And I, they, <laughs> so then the, the person behind the counter brought out this pictorial menu, which was for the stupid foreigners like myself. And um, the students said, point to what you want. And I pointed, she says, oh, you want burger. My, <laughs> sure. So I got the, the burger and I had not ever had anything that spicy in my life. Oh, my goodness. Um, It was like five alarm chili hot. Um, and, and I even put some mayonnaise on the top of it that did not neutralize one bit of the spice. I didn't finish the sandwich and, and I was sweating bullets from the spices. <laughs> and like my kids were like, oh, I think they felt pity on me. And when one of them just kind of went and I thought she was getting herself with something else. She brought me back a few other things to eat along with a, a, a cola and, uh, and, I bit into one of them. It was it, it looked like a little miniature pie, it had a little, little pie crust, and it was an egg tart, uh, which is a Portuguese delis- delicacy introduced into the Chinese uh, gourmet or you know Chinese whatever um, when the Portuguese had colonized you know Macau and some other places there, and now it's all over China. And KFC has really popularized it by having it in all of its restaurants. So it's a sweet egg tart. So then that became my little guilty pleasure to stop and get every so often. And then there were times. At a KFC. I know, at a KFC. (laughs) Uh, And then there were times where I would go to Subway because I just had to have like a traditional sub sandwich. And Mm -hmm. you walk in a Subway and the experience is 100% the same as it would be in one in the United States. So it's not like KFC or McDonald's where they have really tailored it to the local cuisine. That was Mm -hmm. the word I was looking for before. And uh, and so, you know, I would go there. Um, Starbucks was the, was the other place I'd go to every so often. Um, and what's really funny is is to eat in China was such a small portion of my weekly budget, so to speak. It was so cheap unless I went to a place that was an American chain. Uh-huh. <laughs> and and so there clearly was. They were catering to the middle class and yeah. better mm-hmm. there. And then there's the really weird one. Pizza Hut. So you walk into a Pizza Hut and there's crystal chandeliers, white table linens and napkins, and full service wait staff who come to your table, take your order. Um, I think I ordered a steak and mashed potatoes with a glass of wine when I went there with a teaching colleague once. Uh, <laughs> the, the look on both your faces, Melissa and Kurt, is priceless right now because it's like, it's so different. They don't have a stuffed crust meat lovers on the menu? Well, they did, but those were like secondary to like the Western steak dinner or, you know, but any it's of the a other pizza number. hut. Uh, it's a hut for oh, pizza. pizza. 
Yeah, no. Okay. Um, I, they did have pizza there, but you look around at the tables, hardly anyone was eating the pizza. So it's like, okay. And it was. Is and, it wrong that now I want to go to China? Is it wrong that I'm craving pizza, Hut, even though it's not what we're talking about right now? Yeah, right. <laughs> and, um, and the food was actually quite good, um, and it wasn't cheap. I mean, mm-hmm. and this is where high schoolers would take their prom dates. I mean, oh, I kid you not, my it was gosh. so adorable. <laughs> Pizza Hut, that's huh. awesome. This may be a silly question, but so they were debating in English then? Yeah. Okay. Well, they they had the yeah the the main program debated in English. There was another division that schools could enter and debate in Mandarin. Okay. Um, but that, that was just a secondary option. And, um, you know, it mostly for, they had a lot of kids just find out about this all around the country who weren't at schools where a company ran a program. And so the kids would just like research how to debate. They'd watch videos online and then they'd register themselves for the contests and would just show up. And and so the Mandarin division helped serve that need primarily. Um, and this is where my company knew they could make money, you know, by figuring out how to get as many kids involved as possible. Um, but then they ran programs like, there was an opportunity for kids to come over to the U.S. and and compete at the Harvard tournament and, you know, d- do a like a little three day intensive prep workshop in Cambridge. And then there'd be a day of sightseeing built into that. And and I had parents of my students who were pretty savvy consumers and, and they were like, OK, so is the organization sponsoring this a nonprofit organization? Like, well, there is a nonprofit arm to our company, yes, and they are the ones that are sponsoring this because the parents had obviously done enough research to figure that part of it out. And they're like, and then how much money is actually going toward paying the expenses of my child participating in this as opposed to paying other people? And I said, well, there's a certain amount that pays for the staffing that's involved in it, Mm -hmm. but everything else is direct um, to to the the students' expenses, the lodging, Mm -hmm. the transportation, everything else. And and the company literally did not make any profit off of this. They just wanted to support it enough so that, you know, they could pay their people to to do it, but that, you know, effectively it did run like a nonprofit organization. And they were running a lot more of their programming through their nonprofit arm because a lot of parents trusted it more if it came from that as opposed to a company that was making money. Mm -hmm. So the curricular programs were the the company and then all of the outside of things like the, the contests and stuff that we would take kids to were all the nonprofit side. So, so you said you had the option to stay. What, what, what did you do? You were there for a semester and then the choice was, Uh, yeah. And, and, and they, they really wanted me to stay. I mean, I, I, really made great friends with a lot of their people in corporate HQ. I made a couple of trips to Shanghai to, um, to consult for them. And, um, they, they, we were just starting to build, uh, public speaking components to what had previously just been public forum debate, oratory, uh, impromptu speaking, a very basic kind of prose reading kind of thing. And, and really excited about that and coming up, you know, to kind of mirror the NFL rules, but kind of a stripped down, simpler version of it, just so it was easier for everyone to understand. Um, and they wanted me to kind of head up the development of all of that and, and kind of be their merchand- their merchandise. I'm looking at mm-hmm. their shirt down, uh, their bag. <laughs> um, they wanted me to head up their membership efforts because I had done a lot of that at NSDA. And, uh, and right around the time that I was winding down the semester there, my father got really, really ill. He um, he had a quadruple bypass surgery um, up in Appleton, and then he had a series of, of problems that were complications of that that um, when paired with his diabetes um, really ultimately resulted in him losing his foot um, and, and lower part of his leg, his right leg. And so um, I, I just, I had to be back for that, you mm-hmm. know, because, uh, you know, I had lived with my dad all my life. And then when I bought the house in Ripon, he moved up with me and lived with me for a while. And he was living there all alone while I was in China. Mm-hmm. And so I just, I, you have to come back for family. And and I did. And, and, and that's when I 
Also had conversations with Chuck Malone, my predecessor at WHSFA, and I knew that he was stepping down and retiring. Um, and this was always kind of a dream job for me because it was doing a lot of the same kind of things I was doing at NSDA, but on a much more local level where I could really feel my impact more directly mm-hmm. in helping people and, and, and talking with people. And, and I, and, and it, and it, it was and it has been and it is um, it's so gratifying. It's it's really the first job I've had in my life that I have fully loved every part of what I do where I come to work every single morning with a spring in my step. Wow. So. so not mundane. No. <laughs> no. And, and, and that's not to say that, you know, processing data and spreadsheets and all that kind of stuff isn't mundane. But I get through the mundane stuff to get to the exciting stuff. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's that's what keeps me going every day. So let's talk about HSFA. Yeah. How, uh, so you talked how you got that job. What is the job for you? How would you describe it? Uh, and, you know. Not in. It doesn't have to be a sound bite because we got time. Yeah. How do you, how do you describe what you do? <laughs> yeah. The, there are a lot of facets to it. A lot of it is taking what I did at NSDA and just condensing it down to one state, um, but adding a, a few extra elements. Like um, WHSFA runs the state theater one act contest, you know, and the qualifying contests that lead up to that, and and that's been really exciting because. I missed the theater side of what I did when I was a classroom teacher at Rufus King for those years I was with NSTA. So one act gave me an avenue back into that. And it's been so much fun. And I get to work with some incredible minds in theater in terms of the folks who are on the leadership, either on our board of control or on our theater advisory committee, who are some of the rank and file teachers at the schools who direct and, and just the what we've done in the past three and a half years to really kind of bring the theater contest into more relevance uh, for 21st century learning in terms of how we assess or evaluate um, and, and really kind of shoring that up with our adjudicators or judges um, and, and making sure that the feedback is is what it needs to be to be meaningful um, for the directors. Um, my predecessor, Chuck, once said of, of the One Act Contest, it's the one venue in which uh, high school theater teachers can get feedback for the work that they're doing. Mm. Um, and that's really powerful when you think about it. That reconciles with uh, a quotation by... Uh, Dr. Brendan Kelly, who was a director of forensics at the University of West Florida and is now uh, the, the chancellor, I think, or vice chancellor at a school in, in South Carolina. But he said at a, a conference of collegiate uh, forensics coaches I was once at that forensics is assessment in a multi-institutional setting. And while that does sound like a lot of education speak, it's also really powerful because it underscores the importance of what we're doing in bringing our kids together with our professional colleagues from other schools, having them assess or evaluate our students and give them feedback, something they can't get within the four walls of their own school. Mm. And the fact that all of our activities as, as interscholastic do that, I think is so powerful. So a lot of my work is preparing for all of those contests. Um, we provide all of all of the state office level support for our um, in theater district and sectional contests in speech sub district and district. Um, and then of course the state level contests as well as providing some degree of support and uh, really kind of uh, building programming for debate. Uh, as well. And then I'm ex- excited to announce that we are hoping with the 2018-19 school year to introduce a fourth activity in WHSFA, and that's a film festival. Um, and I was really inspired for this when I saw my own son carrying around an iPad and creating videos for assignments for mm-hmm. his school because the La Crosse School District is a one-to-one district where each of the kids has you know, an iPad in in, um, grade school and middle school. And I think they then changed to a laptop in high school. And um, and and my son is at, at a particularly lower socioeconomic school. So to see the kids empowered with 
the well, the power of that technology mm-hmm. and how it enhances their learning, but how the teachers use it as a tool and not a substitute. I, I've just been so impressed by that. And and that really got me thinking about how kids love to to create and how they love to create these videos and, and movies and, and how this could really be tapping into something um, that there isn't really a cohesive venue for in Wisconsin. And with you know, just under 400 high school members across the state, my organization has the infrastructure to help put this into place. And the beauty of film is that, you know, you can upload it to YouTube or some other website and have it evaluated virtually so that you don't even have to bear an extra expense of getting the qualifying contests before everyone does come together for a state level Mm -hmm. festival. And then at the state level festival, like we do for theater, we could have workshops with professional and university level film people and do showcases and screenings of, of cool indie things that are happening at the professional level, as well as showcasing the work that the kids are doing. So I'm really excited about that. There's there's so many possibilities. I've reached out to some of the high school teachers around the state who've been organizing their own little ad hoc film festivals in different little pockets. Um, and right now, that none of the, the film festivals that have existed for high schools are older than three years. So this really is a very now and happening right. movement. Um, so I'm really excited about that. And it's such a natural extension of the forensic universe in terms of the expression that the kids are, are able to engage in, um, the, the, the fact that it's building their confidence, the fact that they're getting feedback mm-hmm. for what they're communicating, how they're performing. And so I'm, I'm just, I'm really excited for what that represents. So, um, that's a, a big aspect of my job is, is also big picture things like what is the vitality of our organization looking like? How are we interfacing with kindred organizations who have, um, like-minded missions like the WFCA and, and, uh, you know, organizations like that in state and making sure that we're, you know, trying to do the best for kids and, and, and for the coaches out there who are trying to be involved in both organizations because they, they see the value in it. They see what it's bringing kids on, on both ends, you know, and, and trying to make their lives as simple as possible has been huge. And, and I just have to give a shout out to the current leadership of WFCA, who I know comp- comprises a large portion of your listenership because they have been more open-minded, I think, in just the past couple of years than, um, and, and, and I think there's, there's open-mindedness that has been expanded on the WHSFA side of things too. I, d- I don't mean to uh, imply that either side has been more tribal than the other, <clears throat> but I do think there was a period where that was the case. And and I was even a, an active coach at the time. And in fact, in leadership in WFCA, where there was a lot of this us versus them narrative instead of an us with us narrative. Mm-hmm. And I'm seeing more of that. And I think that's so important in a time where school budgets are, are coming under greater scrutiny and and people just want to know that you know what they're doing is is supported and WHSFA has the benefit of a staffed state office where we can help provide some of that advocacy. And I see it, quite frankly, as part of the mission of us as being a nonprofit organization, as advocating for all forensics in Wisconsin, not just for the the, the type that our member schools are doing. And I, I really feel it's important to get that out there and that, that yeah. people are aware of that. We started, in fact, as a program of UW-Madison. Um, we were part of the UW University Extension and then the um, Division of Continuing Studies. And um, we extracted in the early 1990s um, to become an independent nonprofit. But I'd like to think that the mission that comes out of being part of Madison, being part of the Wisconsin idea, um, extends you know, as a big picture of what we're doing and, and what we're trying to reach in terms of the kids around the state. So. Sure. So, I mean, that kind of leads us to what might be the elephant in the room of, you know, that mentality that you just referenced of the us versus them, uh, which has been, I think, a part of the history of the WFCA as we have grown up uh, through it uh, and then became coaches in it. Um, you, you have that dual perspective. Yeah. 
Do you know where that came from? I do. Uh, and and I'm, I am such a nerd uh, about forensics. And I know I'm in great company with, with you as forensics. How dare you? <laughs> I mean, I'll take it. But uh, yeah, there's that badge of honor on, on Melissa's uh, lapel there. But uh, no, I, I mean, I just a quick little sidebar. I remember being at NCFL Nationals in Washington, D.C. in 2003 with a group of my kids and and. The group of kids I had that year was just one of those groups where it's such a a family and and we just had such fun together, and we were traveling in tandem with Milwaukee High School of the Arts. Um, all all of us went to go visit our congressman when we were there, and he was it was Jerry Kletchka at the time um, out of Milwaukee, and he was so supportive of what we were doing, and and literally spent an hour with the kids, and and just like ask them questions about what they thought about issues and for the those kids they were like this was such a profound experience that we had an elected official who actually wanted to know what we thought about things you know and i and i'm just so glad that i had this weird little brainstorm to do that you know and and i think the kids who were most excited about it were the kids who were in like dramatic performance or (laughs) not even the congressional debaters that i had with me it was it was the the other kids who you know that wasn't their focal point and i think it it rang all the truer for them you know as, as an experience and and one of the nights of that tournament I don't know why or how, but we were all kind of gathered in one hotel room eating pizza and the kids were pummeling me with questions about the history of forensics in Wisconsin. So I was just like gushing about all this stuff that I had learned. And then when I took this job, I started scouring the WHSFA's files because we were founded in 1895 as the Wisconsin Lyceum Society. And then in 1925, as another certain organization was born in Ripon, the National Forensic League, um, we, our organization followed suit and changed our name to what it is today as, as the WHSFA and um, to kind of be unified in that, that forensic kind of idea. Mm-hmm. And uh, and now we have that very long history since 1925 um, as established in the state. Um, but, you know, it, it's interesting. There was a file that I found um, in this old, like, yellowed folder, and it was called Steinhorst Copeland Correspondence. And I thought, ooh, that ooh, sounds interesting. Yes, it does. So I pulled it out, poured myself some hot tea, and, uh, <laughs> and, and, and just kind of began perusing it. And at the time, Jim Copeland, this was in the mid to late 1960s, was the coach at Marquette High School. Ron Steinhorst was the coach at New London High School mm-hmm. earlier on in his career. And Jim was advocating for the creation of a competitive single division championship in speech and debate. So Wisconsin could qualify an additional qualifier in each of the NFL's and SDA's main events to nationals Mm. because they had passed a rule change at the time that in addition to the district qualifier, the state champion in a single division tournament could then go on to be a national qualifier if they were a member of NFL prior to entering that tournament. So what we saw nationwide in the late 1960s, early 1970s, was a birth of all kinds of WFCA and WDCA-like organizations because if the State Activities Association had multiple school population classifications and didn't do a single division state championship, Mm -hmm. that wouldn't work. So then another organization was formed to fill that purpose. And at the time, Ron Steinhorst vehemently defended the non-competitive philosophy of WHSFA as one of its district chairs and members of the WHSFA Board of Control. And so what I'm guessing is outside of what is in print documentation in those files was a conversation between Jim Copeland and Ron Steinhorst Mm -hmm. about founding a new organization and and thus the WFCA was, was born. But I will tell you as a high schooler and even early in my coaching career in the 1990s, um, when I'd go to WFCA meetings, there was very much this 
I don't want to say necessarily deferential mentality, but a what is WHSFA doing and, and how are we in line with that? Because at the time, I would say two thirds to three quarters of the coaches in the room also did WHSFA mm-hmm. in addition to WFCA. Um, and, and it was something expected by the school principals because this is the organization they understood at the time the W. HSFA was governed more by school administrators, athletic directors on our board of control, and the rank and file teachers were part of the advisory committees that set the rules in the different categories and, and activities that we ran. So it, it, a lot of the schools, like even real competitive schools, would do WHSFA because their principal or superintendent was on the board of control and it was just kind of expected. And there was a movement along the same time that the organization became its own independent nonprofit um, to relax that rule, allow rank and file coaches to ascend to positions of leadership on the board of control. And and the more that happened, the more we saw the organization lose some of, of its clout to the point now where even when we've recruited administrators to serve on the board, Even in an advisory capacity, it's been difficult to find them because if we think teachers are overworked and Mm -hmm. underappreciated in a post-Act 10 Wisconsin, you could not pay me enough money to be a school administrator. That job is just for saints as far as I'm concerned. (laughs) So I I think that's a good part of it. I think um, also, you know, especially after September 11th, as we saw the – I, I think we saw a lot of things change in our society. And, and it's when the economy became less stable after that. And, and really, you know, and then we had the, the recession of 2008. And we've just seen schools and even and program directors like directors of forensics have to make tough decisions. And if they're just doing speech, um, the, you know, $75 or whatever it is to join WFCA seems a lot easier than the, the dues for WHSFA, which conceivably would serve three and, and hopefully in the future four activities. Mm-hmm. But for somebody who's just doing speech, they, they don't see the point. And quite frankly, I can't say I blame them if, if that's what they're doing, you know, but, you know, it's it's just a different idea, I think, mm-hmm. a different mindset. And and I would love to see a world where, you know, maybe the, the organizations down the road could come back together, you know, and I don't think that's something that's going to happen anytime soon. You know, I'm, I'm very much a realist. I think both organizations have a unique culture. I think there's really great things about the culture in both organizations. And I think the core people in both organizations might feel threatened by any kind of specter mm-hmm. of, of unification because they feel like their identity might be lost. But I, I look across the fence, you know, where the grass is always greener at states like (laughs) Colorado or Kansas, where they run a common set of rules. And then you can elect to go to a tournament. You can elect to go to a festival. And, you know, everybody's happy because Mm -hmm. they pick the kind of competition that they they feel comfortable with. And, and, you know, they, they all come together, you know, in professional development workshops and conferences because they all, they're all doing the same kind of thing. They're just getting there a slightly different way. And I would love to see if nothing else, a Wisconsin where we would at least be able to do that because as I've gone around and really met people all around the state, whether they're doing competitive tournaments or just doing the WHSFA subdistrict district state level of things, there is still that competitive fire in the eyes of coaches who like success, who like their kids to do well, who demand a certain degree of excellence from their kids. And when I coached at Ripon College on the collegiate level, we would have those kids come in um, never having experienced a tournament. And then when we told them that at the collegiate level, they'd be balancing six different events at the same time, you know, their heads would turn around, you mm-hmm. know, because it was, it was so different from what they were doing um, in the festival circuit. But yet the quality of what they did, you know, for the festival was still on par with, you know, someone who would power at a WFCA tournament. They, they're just in a remote part of the state where they don't have access to that or their, their coach, you know, is, is younger and has a family and doesn't want to commit to more than the three festivals a year. So, you know, it's I've learned that we have a lot more in common than we do different. 
And, and to me, that's encouraging. I just wish I could share that, you know, evangelize that to more mm-hmm. people around the state who, who like to focus on the differences rather than what unifies us. And I think that says a lot about our society in general right now and how tribal we've become politically. Um, and I'd like to see us break down those barriers of tribalism as much as possible. You're here. Yeah. So as someone who has never competed HSFA, I went to a school that for as long as I can remember was only FCA. What sort of pitch do you make for a school like mine to potentially consider next season joining the HSFA and trying it out? That's a really good question. Um, I, I think there, there's a couple. One, um, when I ran my program at Rufus King, I, I realized there was a place for the hyper-competitive kids who had that zeal and, and, and wanted to you know, push themselves and, and push one another harder, and, and they thirsted for that every week. And then there were the kids who did forensics, I think, for more intrinsic reasons. They just loved you know, performing. They just loved I, – I had one student, in fact, this goes way early into my career, who was being emotionally abused at home. And we figured that out because she had picked a number of pieces of poetry and, and short stories she did for Ago um, that expressed that. And, and she would perform and then just start bawling. And so we, we talked to her and we we're like, what's going on? And as we dug deeper, we figured out. And of course, we made a referral to the, the appropriate um, services people at the school to make sure she was OK. And, and the school psychologist uh, and I met and, and she said, Forensics is the best thing for the student because mm-hmm. it is therapeutic for her. She feels better by being able to get it out, you know, and, and she she wasn't like the most hyper competitive, but there is such a sincerity to what she did. And it was so important for her intrinsically. She was the kind of kid who who didn't care if she got all ranks of five at a tournament we'd go to. You know, she just loved doing it. We, we'd go to a festival early in the season, though. And, and she really found that that the merit points really kind of motivated her. And so I think the kind of kid that each kind of contest serves is very different, and it offers something to everyone. And you could certainly talk to the Antonios, the Antonio Trinidad of St. Lawrence and um, Joe Meineke of Muskego and, and others who do both, and they will probably tell you something very similar that, you know, each kid on their program is served a little bit differently by the two different um, organizations. And, and we have some things kind of in the works that I'm not at liberty to talk about right now, but let's just say it'll make the activity accessible to a larger number of students within a squad in a school um, because I think that really plays to the niche of what WHSFA offers. So mm-hmm. I think that's a strength. I think the the other part of it is just the overall experience of a festival as being a little bit different from a tournament. I know that when I was coaching at Rufus King, and and I will readily admit that I am – kind of a hyper-competitive personality. Um, I, I also think that I've mellowed a little bit, um, and I think that's something that we do as, as human beings as, as we get older and, and ourselves as former competitors more distanced from that experience. I think we begin to mellow and not see the, you know, the constant um, drive toward that. And even in, you know, in my last couple of years coaching, I, I began to take a few weekends off. Um, I, I urged my students to do that from time to time because I think it's healthy. You know, we talk a lot these days, self-care is the big buzzword, you know, and, and I, think, um, I think sometimes I worry about the health of coaches in our activity, especially at the highest levels. You know, we were, we're running programs like I was at Rufus King, where I was coaching debate, coaching speech, you know, going to tournaments across state lines and in, in Northern Illinois and, and, you know, even jetting to Harvard once a year, you know, stuff like that. It really takes its toll on you over time. And I can't, at the time I was single, I can't even imagine having a family and, and children uh, to juggle as I do now um, and, and run a program that type without sufficient support coaching assistant mm-hmm. coaching yeah. staff and that kind of stuff so um i i think there's there's also a more laid-back feel at festivals which is such a refreshing change of pace for somebody who's been more in the competitive circuit um i think it forces kids 
to perform a slightly different way because they're not performing to advance to a, a finals round. Instead, they're performing to best their previous performance. And there's something to be had in that. And I, and you know, I, I know um, when you talked about in, in your podcast in, in this past spring, what you're talking about, judges, um, <laughs> that, that you talked about, you know, the, the perception of, of what judges write. And I am on a personal quest. And, and, um, and I, uh, I'll back up for a minute. I've been involved in WHSFA and its adjudicator training program since 2001. Um, as a relatively young coach, I attended a trainer of the trainings workshop with um, then professor uh, and dean Michael Price of, of Marquette University, who was the WHSFA speech advisor at the time. And um, co-teaching the class with him was one Mary Wacker and co-attending the class uh, as a colleague of mine, as a peer, was Dr. Kay Neal of UW Oshkosh. Um, and, and so, and now Kay and I are some it's of the- It's a shame they're such quiet spoken people. I know. I know. Uh. <laughs> and, and Kay and I now are some of the longest serving veteran trainers in the WHSFA for that program. Um, but even one of my priorities when, when, I, when I took the helm of the organization was to modernize that program to um, work with um, members of our leadership and our organization who are already starting to sow the seeds of reforming it. Um, we did a total rehab of our evaluation sheets a couple of years ago to just make the language simpler, more straightforward. We have, we've divided the five, five criteria that the, the WFCA ballots still have as evaluation criteria, but we divide them into five distinct, discrete areas that essentially form a rubric by which then the the judges will circle points. And originally the the rubric was, you know, excellent equals five points, very good equals four points, good is three, you know, Mm -hmm. fair is two and poor is one, you know, and those aren't descriptive. What is excellent? You know, <laughs> yeah. so so now it's you know exceeds uh, criteria expert expectations and and the language is much more aligned with you know the the language of education used in evaluative tools in classrooms um, and is is a lot more helpful to to judges when they're evaluating. I, I think if they're really taking the language to heart and reading this and thinking about how they're evaluating, you should see more consistent among the scores from round to round and festival to festival um, because we've endeavored to make that language clearer. And we've also broken out like some of those evaluation criteria and the ones in WFCA, it's not an accident that they're worded almost exactly the same from WHSFA. The WFCA was born of the WHSFA mm-hmm. and that's, you know, yeah. the, 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 everything was just kind of transferred over. And and as the organizations have matured and, and made decisions separate of one another, I think there's been some massaging. But I, I had this aha moment when I was at the WFCA fall meeting and somebody had, had introduced a, a proposal to edit some of the language for clarity in one of the categories. And I'm like, that sounds awfully familiar. I had deja vu. I looked. WHSFA had just made that same change three years ago. Mm-hmm. And I thought, shame on me for not sharing that with colleagues in the WFCA sooner. And that was a, a, a sobering reminder to me to just be a, a lot more open, a lot more transparent with what's happening in WHSFA, because chances are, if we're doing it for the betterment of kids, it could have an impact in our sister organization. And I think the same holds true for the reverse. And, and that's why... I think a lot of coaches are excited about the allowance we, we will have this season in Farago for transitionless programs. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, we, we did a survey and this is talking about data driven decisions over breakfast. And, um, we surveyed all of our member speech coaches after our state festival in April, and we had close to three quarters response rate, which for any kind of surveys is incredible. Yeah. And I think a lot of them were galvanized by a change we made this year at the festival. Um, we, we implemented SpeechWire two years ago, but this year we had building by building ballot turn in at UW Madison. And that campus is vast. And by having tab stations logged into SpeechWire at each building, it allowed for coaches to return to the headquarters building 
everything having been tabulated by that point. So literally somebody would hit print for that school. It would print a report of all of the students' scores that had been tabulated and how many medallions they, they had to pick up for each, you know, particular level that the kids had achieved. And people were like, we were in and out of there in like three minutes. Yeah. This used to take a half hour because they would literally take all of the critique sheets, copy down the scores, double check, and then go and count out the medals. And now all of it's been um, automated by SpeechWire. Mm-hmm. Hand so. tabulation is awful. Yeah. Yeah, right. So, um, yeah, that, that made such a huge difference. And I think the coaches wanted to say, yes, please do this again. So it brought them to the survey. And then we asked them questions about things like Farago and, and four minute. Now, you know, it's a double edged sword when you ask those kinds of questions mm-hmm. in four minute. Um, the, the results were quite the opposite. People were overwhelmingly, um, in favor of keeping four minute, four minute. Uh, that said, I've had anecdotal conversations with some WHSFA coaches around the state. Uh, including some who admitted they didn't fill out the survey. And and they're like, oh, I always feel like there's never enough time to express what we want to express in a four-minute speech. Mm-hmm. So um, to the credit of, of a lot of our board members, we will be piloting a six-minute version of four-minute uh, informative at uh, some of our invitationals that use oh, WHSFA cool. rules and then surveying the judges, the kids, the coaches to get a sense of what they think. So, you know, the, the jury is still out, so to mm-hmm. speak. And I, and I think that's what's exciting about change is that you know, if it's a good enough idea that it's going to pass one of our two organizations, it's probably that's a good indication that it's probably a good fit in the other. Right. You know, so I, I and I think the fact that we're collaborating more, um, it's we've had the privilege of, of Ben Kroll, Ron Steinhorst, um, John Rademacher, um, to name a few is folks who've come to our speech advisory committee meetings. Mm-hmm. And I only hope to strengthen that. What I'd love to see is anytime people on either organization want to bring forward a proposal that they do so by the beginning of summer so that we can really, to use your term from an earlier podcast, workshop those proposals in a smaller committee uh, format so that, you know, there's there's fewer people in the room kind of arguing the fewer points and or the finer points. And we're, we're kind of fleshing that out. Mm-hmm. So a much more complete proposal comes to uh, the the greater memberships right. of both organizations, um, and and I really I, again I have to uh, give a shout out to uh, Elliot Fisher and Judine Bry who collaborated and submitted a joint proposal to both organizations. It mm-hmm. failed because it was so different. It was uh, <laughs> to basically eliminate topic areas and special occasion and allow the students to kind of create their own occasion. Um, and and personally, I think it has a lot of merit. But um, I think the coaches in, in our committee were so blindsided by it. They're like, well, I don't even know what to think. And we've already right. collaborated with WFCA on, on really great topics for this upcoming year. And we want to mm-hmm. see those that come to fruition. So, but but again, I will be doing extensive surveying of, of our membership to see if that's something they're interested in. Mm-hmm. And, and then we'll be able to make that data-driven decision. So I think that'll be really helpful. That's good. It's so heartening to hear you talk about uh, the possibilities that can come from having two separate organizations. Because I think we don't see it that way a lot of times. I know on this podcast, we've actually advocated for change a lot on the WFCA side. But part of the reason we can do that is because the WFCA model for changing the rules is to get our membership together twice a year and whoever shows up, majority rules. Mm -hmm. It is probably a little easier for us to change a rule than it is for the HSFA. Yeah. Yeah. Who will will want more evidence because it's it's a board of control. I, I... I'm gleaning that that's how you change your rules. Right. Well, yeah, it's a much more representative democracy than a direct democracy. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it has the, the finer degree of levels to it because mm-hmm. the speech advisory committee, which – the, the reason it exists is because rank and file speech coaches weren't on the board originally uh, because it was school administrators. But we've kept that to keep more people involved in the process. Um, I, I have a big vision for someday doing an NSDA style leadership conference or mm. education conference where we bring people together. And and my vision would be to make it a joint, you know, between the two organizations sponsoring it and, and you know, bringing in speakers, you know, who are like legendary coaches from other states 
as guest speakers and lever- leveraging some of those connections and, and figuring out more what we have in common mm-hmm. and more what needs to change in rules to to make sure we're meeting the needs of kids in the 21st century and and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, and yeah. I, I do like that about the WFCA meetings. I, I, I always glean something and I always make a point when I glean really great perspective to take it back to the board mm-hmm. and say, well, this was said at the WFCA meeting. You know, even, you know, I, I thought it was really um, perceptive that some coaches were talking about when, when we were talking about uh, visual aids and informative speaking and, and they were speaking to, well, why don't we allow kids to use PowerPoint or some kind of digital presentation because that's that's such a 21st century skill and something they're being expected to do in their classes. And then then the the, the dialogue then went to well the logistics of it. You know, how do we make sure it's available in a school and were the liabilities involved and would that separate the haves from the have nots? And I guess maybe I've always been a little bit more progressive when it comes to things uh, ideologically where I'm like, we shouldn't be focusing on why and why and how we can't do it. We should be figuring out if it's something worth doing, how to make it work. Mm-hmm. And I've always, I've always uh, kind of operated myself by that philosophy. You know, the, the organization should not be structured around how we run our contests. They should be structured around what serves kids the best and how our contests can be adapted to serve their needs and and like like your t-shirt says number one rule (laughs) be nice to kids and i think that's so important Forensic Spaces is recorded and edited in Sheboygan, Wisconsin. Our theme song was written and performed by JJ Hammeister. If you're a fan of Forensic Spaces, give us a rating on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. Find more info at ForensicSpaces.com or connect with us on Facebook and Twitter by searching for Forensic Spaces. I'm Kurt. And I'm Melissa, encouraging you to listen, think, and speak. Preferably in that order. Preferably in that order.